Uh, again, thank you all for being here today. I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we're going to be in Genesis 25 today. We'll begin around verse number 19, and I would encourage you, uh, if you have a marker, um, place um, one around Psalm 24. We'll be um, at the very end, very end of the service. I want to um, put a couple verses right in front of us before we leave, so if you would put a place there in uh, Psalm 24, but We'll be reading from Genesis 25 in just a few minutes. Uh, we're in week three of a series we're calling, uh, calling Fallen. Um, and each week we've began our conversations talking about things that fall, um, if you'll recall. Now, week one, um, we talked about me uh, falling down stairs, if you'll remember. I won't recount those embarrassing stories. I fell down a lot of things in life, but stairs was one of them, off of tractors and other things that, uh, um, if you might remember. And then last week, we talked about um, falling stars or shooting stars. Um, and we learned they're actually meteors, and um, we talked all about that and learned uh, uh, also, I think, a picture of, of God's uh, purpose for us despite um, that we fall. Um, but uh, now we're in week three, so I think we're going to try to keep this downward spiral going and, and see where we can go from here. Um, so uh, let's talk about dropping things, because that's the worst thing that can happen. Um, and, and Well, not the worst, there's worse things, but it, it's aggravating when you drop things, um, because when you drop things, you often lose things, right? Uh, and, and when you lose things, you just have to go looking for it, and it's just not a really good thing. And, and, and I don't know about y'all, but I have this experience a lot. It doesn't matter if I'm outside, inside, carpet, hardwood, wherever I'm at in the house or wherever I'm at in the world, it seems. Um, have you ever dropped something on the ground, um, which is where things go when they drop, of course. Have you ever dropped something on the ground that was indistinguishable from the surface that it fell on? Have you ever dropped something, and as soon as it lands, you can hear it, maybe you didn't hear it, but you know where it kind of, the vicinity of where it went, but it's almost like it's just indistinguishable from the surface that it fell on, whether it's carpet or hardwood or, God forbid, if it's outdoors, if you drop something onto certain surfaces, it's almost as if you've lost it forever. It seems like um, every time I drop something, it's always the perfect color to get camouflaged in to the surface that it fell on. And, and I do this all the time with screws and bolts and things that I'm using to put stuff together. Um, it, it, and maybe you've got the experience, this experience with jewelry. Um, I know Lindsay does. I don't, she's in, she's, there she is. Um, we, we lost an earring. We found that. Thank, it was in the bed, which surprisingly, earrings uh, match the, the sheets that we have pretty well. Um, maybe, you, ladies, you've dropped an earring or two, and, or worse, a ring or something. Um, and if it falls in the wrong place or down the wrong uh, around the wrong place um it can uh, it, it can make you afraid uh you know kids when I was a kid I, I played with Legos all the time I always would drop Legos um and 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 it was like oh I'm never gonna find them um and and they would fall on carpet or they would fall in the couch or something like that and you just you couldn't find them and it was almost like they just blended in with the surface and um I was gonna tell <laughs> y'all forgive me because I'm not gonna tell the story but I'm gonna tell part of the story I was gonna tell this about this time that um I had just cleaned a toilet. It was, just preface with that, I just cleaned it. Um, and something fell down the toilet. And I had to put on a big, long glove and almost got my hand stuck. I was gonna tell that story, but that story is embarrassing and it kind of grosses people out. So I'm not gonna tell that story. But I will tell the story um, about, <laughs> that was bad enough already, wasn't it? Um, but a while back, uh, we were setting up um, uh, an invisible fence around our property for our dog, Chewy. I would have put a picture on the screen, but Lindsay shares the pictures of him enough, so I figure y'all know what he looks like. Um, his real name's Chewbacca. You probably can guess, right, where that comes from. But Chewy um, uh, likes to be, not just chew things, he also likes to run away. Um, so uh, we were putting a, a, a boundary around the house, an invisible fence, and uh, we had been taking the collar on and off of him to get him trained for the, the thing, 
just kind of work him in, um, walking him around the property. Um, and we uh, took the collar off uh, one day when we had done his training, and we laid it um, on the ground. Well, the, long story short, the next day, um, the collar got ran over by the lawnmower. So the, the lawnmower threw all the pieces everywhere, and, and the collar was easy to find, but the device, the, 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 the sensory piece, and the prongs and the batteries, it just went wherever it wanted to go, right, in all different directions, because when the blade hit it, it just knocked it off, knocked the thing loose, the battery flew out, the prongs flew out, um, and it was just thrown all over the yard. So um, naturally, the things are pretty pricey, so we kind of went about trying to find, um, it didn't have a metal detector, that would have helped, um, but we went out about trying to find the, the battery and, and the prongs and everything, and, and finally, even with freshly cut grass, um, there was no way we were going to spot those pieces from just kind of walking around looking. So uh, eventually I had to do the whole, you know, like ghillie suit thing and just get on the ground and army crawl um, until I found the pieces. Unfortunately, the, the, the things were bent and we had to buy a new one anyway. But at least I had the honor and the, the pride of finding something that I, I dropped for once. Um, but after I got down on my knees and after I was crawling around and felt around for it, I finally found each little piece that I was missing. And you see, I could have been walking, and I actually was walking right where they were laying, but it seemed like they were so far away. But when I took a change of posture, when I got on the ground, it turns out I wasn't that far away at all. It was just my perception, my perspective was off. It's like dropping something near your bed or your couch or any piece of furniture. You pretty much have to begin the search by going ahead and getting on the floor and digging under something or you're never going to find what you lost. You're never going to find what you dropped. You can look from above all you want. You can stand in the right place, but a posture change can and actually usually does make all the difference. You see... Fallen things. Fallen things quickly become lost things. They'll never be found unless we get on the ground. And that's where we gain clarity and vision. Now, you know why we should take this seriously? Because God in heaven looked down from above at all of creation that was lost and fallen by its own choice, mind you. But he created us, and because God is perfect in a way that we can't understand, God takes responsibility for things that he makes, even if they walk away from him. God is a perfectionist, so he wasn't going to let us just lay broken on the ground. God became a man, and God came looking for us to find us and to raise us back up. Isn't that good? Now, we know that God became a man. We call him Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God who came fully God, fully man, who lived and died to bring us back to God. Jesus, in one of his parables where he was explaining what he was doing and why he came, he told this familiar story. What woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds that one lost coin so when people said Jesus what are you all about what is your ministry in a nutshell can you give us one sentence that summarizes who you are and why you've come he would say I'm like someone like you when you drop something valuable to you and it may seem insignificant to everyone else but to you it's something priceless and you will do whatever you got to do to find that treasure so is that God has sent his son to find every last one of us. 
But long before Jesus came, God was establishing a road to redemption. He had and was working out a plan to introduce his son to the world. Jesus didn't just show up. He was born of a woman. We're about to celebrate that season, of course. But the pathway that involved, uh, that, that brought Jesus was, uh, began with starting a nation. Starting a nation, and before that nation, there was a family. And before that family, there was just a few people. And although Jesus was and is perfect, he came through and from a long line of not-so-perfect people, which that's encouraging, isn't it? In fact, God's route to fixing our fallen world wasn't with or through perfect people. There were none of those around, after all. Genesis 6, 5, we read a couple weeks ago that God said this, he saw the wickedness of man, it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his or her heart was only evil continually. So clearly there was no perfect people to choose from because all were fallen and had sinned. All were coming short of the glory of God. It was with and through imperfect fallen people that God began what we know as the redemption story. And as we near the Christmas season, as we reflect and recall a story that seems so perfect and so fairy tale esque so buttoned up, every detail sending chills up our spines, it's important that we remember the backstory was far from perfect. It's far from a fairy tale. While we may remember the stories that led up to Jesus and even those that follow him as these perfect stories of perfect people, we marvel at the extraordinary things that God did through them, through these super saints and their faith. We've learned already in a few short weeks that there are a lot of stories that we didn't learn growing up, that we just conveniently skipped over because they are rather unholy and they're rather embarrassing. And they tell some things about our heroes that we would, maybe they would like to forget. In fact, God kick-started this redemption through a few people that we've already learned about, Noah and Abraham. Namely, they had as many dismal failures as they did decisive victories. The blood that flowed from Adam to Noah and Abraham may have connected them to God, but the flesh they were in carried that divine disconnection and that curse of sin. God chose a long line of fallen men and women through which he would redeem the world. He didn't stand back and wait for somebody to get to him. He reached down and called fallen, ordinary people to himself. And even when they stumbled past him, even when they wandered away from him, he would follow them. Don't miss that. Noah and Abraham, they might be famous for being followers of God, but their redemption secret is that God followed them when they were rebellious against him. Listen, this didn't just start before when they met him. God had been after them and chasing them, following them. And even when they met him and even when they would sin again, he would continue to pursue them. We talk a lot about our following God and that's important, but isn't it amazing to know that our God follows us to find us? Because like Abraham and like Noah and those that would come after them, they're no different than us. They were sinners just like us, which gives me tremendous hope, and I hope it gives you tremendous hope because we can be saved and used just like they were. But you know what I marvel at more than that? You think, what's more marvelous than God using sinners and saving sinners? What I marvel at more than that in the stories that we've read and the stories that we'll read is how God continuously raises the stakes on himself every generation, every new person that he calls, that he raises up. He raises the stakes on himself 
God continues to take bets on proven sinners while promising and making unconditional promises to them. Every time he makes a promise, he, it's almost like he, he boxes himself in more and more. By his own volition, nobody's making him. If this doesn't communicate the goodness of God, I don't know what does. Remember the story of Noah, that God put a bow in the cloud. And we think of a rainbow, but literally the, the Hebrew is a bow and arrow, as if God has pointed the arrow toward himself, that if I don't keep my part of the deal, you can pretty much you know, wipe me out, because I am going to keep my promises. Noah, you're about to get drunk and make a fool of yourself, but I am still going to keep my promise to you. Isn't that good? God made Abraham a righteous man and then he went around and did some awful, heinous, immoral acts. But God said, Abraham, this isn't on you. It's on me. We see this even more powerfully in Abraham's descendants as God continues to double down on his own grace. And what's even amazing, more amazing, about Abraham's descendants God picked Abraham's descendants ahead of time. I mean, before it was just, you know, he went from Adam to Noah, you know, Enoch to Noah to Abraham. But now he said, hey, Abraham, I'm all in with you. It's going to be your line forever. I'm going to use your son, your grandson, your great, I'm going to use all of your family. I'm picking y'all ahead of time. You don't have to prove your merit or prove your worth. It's all on me. No plan B, no plan C. I am all in. Even though Abraham's son would prove to be just as flaky as his dad when it came to trusting God amidst uncertain times. But you see what God is doing, just as he promised to Noah and Abraham, through this line, he would reveal himself to the whole world, reveal his heart and his character, and make it undeniable, his passion, his desire, his patience, and his grace. And what we find with every new generation, God proves to be just as gracious and just as generous. It's almost like he was glad for there to be this contrast to make his goodness stand out all the more so that future generations would be without excuse when it comes to understanding our God's approach and our God's invitation. And what we see throughout Abraham's descendants in their story it's as his chosen people continued to fall away, he was more determined to follow them and find a way to bless them even when they were proving to be almost evasive. Now, there's part of us, there's part of me, there's part of you, that even though we've experienced this side of God, it's almost like this is too good to be true, isn't it? It's almost like there's got to be a catch, there's got to be a but. And maybe you're thinking, you know, can, is this true? Can this be trusted or believed so i gotta tell you we're gonna raise the stakes even more today there's no greater proof of god's patience and commitment to redemption than the story of esau and jacob i would put this up this is the most proof i could give you and i don't really know why we would need any more proof of the patience and commitment of god to redeem sinners like us now, if you haven't heard this story before, the story of Esau and Jacob is a story of extremes. No one's ever going to have a story like theirs. Uh, uh, it's a sibling, sibling rivalry that's taken to 11, a story of drama and deception, a story that suggests and that proves that humanity, we, it, it tells that we always abuse and mishandle promises from God. That's really, if I'm going to spoil the story for you, the, in a nutshell, the story of, Abraham, uh, of, of Jacob and Esau is that humanity, you and me, 
always find a way to abuse and mishandle the promises that God makes to us and commits to us. We just can't help ourselves. Try as we might. We find a way to blow it. We find a way to, and not just blow it, we find a way to make it just look like we're just doing it defiantly. What God has given us, we twist and manipulate. We bend to fit our own agendas, our own fallen agendas, mind you. The story of Esau and Jacob proves that we really are too far gone. It proves that we don't deserve redemption. In these two brothers' lives, we witness how nasty and competitive and possessive humans can be over things that don't even belong to them. It shows how we take the things that God gives, we wring all the goodwill out of them, trying to consume all that we can as if it's owed to us. So with that being said, I want you to listen to the introduction of these two, these twins, Esau and Jacob, and we'll get a little bit of a teaser of their story. Genesis 25, verse 19, the genealogy of Isaac is so forth. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel and the Syrian of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban. That's going to be an important character. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. He was like a hair, it was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which means red. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means heel catcher. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skilled hunter of a man of the field. But Jacob was a, wild, was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and, his, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, a nickname of Esau's. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. What is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. And he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of the lentils and he ate and drank and arose. He went his way. Thus Esau despised or thought for nothing the value of of this birthright. Now, if you were to dive in deep and read every verse of this story, the story of Esau and Jacob is a deep dive, a profile on what sin has done to the appetites of people, you and me. Without hardly an ounce of moderation, this appetite can even distort the promises of God, choking out what God says, willing and ready to kill the goose, trying to find some golden egg. As God sets out to make major, major promises regarding the future salvation of the world, we see him navigate these delicate, hostile waters in order to send a message through time. Our ability to be used by God has everything to do with how we handle our appetites, we learn from these stories. How we must bring them under God's guidance, under God's uh, uh, rule, 
Because here's something important that we learn about ourselves in the story of these two men's lives. God promises that the future salvation of the world will come from their generation. He says that ahead of time. We've already read it. But only one of them will get the divine blessing that will carry forward his plan he began with Noah and continued with Abraham. And herein, we sense the tension that would develop. Both of them want to be blessed by God. Both of them know deep down that their destiny is only found in God's hands. But both of them want to be in control of their own destiny at the same time. Much like Abraham struggled with trusting God and taking things into his own hands, both have an appetite a God-given appetite. But the problem with this appetite, this appetite has two different sides. We have an appetite for God, a, a desire to know him, to follow him, but we also have an appetite for self. And the thing about our appetites, uh, they're God-given, but they're also sin-wrecked. Appetites bear the thumbprint of God, the image of God that wants to progress and move forward. But sin has spun and spirals our appetite out of control, making us demand more and now more often on our own terms. And here's the thing about appetites. The more we give in, the more they get us, right? The more we bow to them, the more they control us. They're never fully and finally satisfied. They grow with every concession we make. And unless we are aware of their sinful intentions, the sinful bent behind every desire, even good God-given gifts can devolve and deform into the worst of monsters. And it's not only our appetite for carnal things to get out of control, even our desire for progress, attention, success, acceptance, love, self, uh, stuff, and, and, and anything that we think are good things, they all have this dark underbelly if they're unchecked. We can easily miss what God wants to do with us and through us and for us if we are tricked by the inward deceptive nature of sin. And this is all around us. None of us are invulnerable. None of us are immune. We see in this story that Esau traded in the ultimate for the immediate. He crashed in his future for a failure. And that's the reason why Jacob replaces Esau in this amazing story. Now, it was prophesied, but we see how it literally happened. Of course, that's why when you read in the Bible, anywhere you see the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, it should have said, it could have said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But in this moment when Esau wasn't thinking about the future, he wasn't thinking about eternity, he wasn't thinking about the big picture, and of course God foresaw that, he was just thinking about his belly. And Esau traded that in, and J I, Jacob was the benefactor. We're reminded of Esau's could have, should have, and would have every time we read the Bible. But Esau, of course, didn't consider that. He didn't have the wherewithal to get down and really consider what he had lost and where he could find it. And what's even more wild, though, is what Jacob turns around and does. Jacob turns around and makes equally foolish decisions, and the story that follows isn't as you might would expect. It's not a story of Jacob succeeding despite Esau's foolish decisions. It's a story of Jacob succeeding despite his own equally foolish decisions. Now, maybe you've read the story, but truly, if you haven't, it's one of the most remarkable stories in all of history, let alone Scripture. Now, it starts out very juvenile. Jacob's just a kid wanting some recognition against his big brother. He's a little brother wanting his moment in the spotlight. He didn't even consider the big picture ramifications until his mom finds out what he just pulled off. 
And one afternoon, she takes him over to the side, away from his father, and she thought, I didn't know you had this in you, son. But now that you've pulled this off, we've got to seal the deal. You've got to get your father's blessing. Because as the custom was, the father would lay hands and pass along to the next. And this was so crucial because one of them was going to bear this blessing from God. Abraham, Isaac, who was going to be the next? Of course, he already had the birthright. I'm sure they got that legally transferred and whatnot. But this would show a formal passing of the family torch. So they come up with this grand plan to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob with what was meant for Esau, what he was planning for Esau. This whole ceremony was planned, but Isaac was old. His eyesight was gone. So Jacob puts on some animal skins, takes a bath in animal guts or whatever to make him smell as bad as Esau smells on a normal day. But here's where we see Jacob's own appetite wake up and get the best of him. He got his family birthright without having to do anything. So rather than saying, okay, mom, I know you're great and God love you, but shouldn't we talk to God about this? Because wasn't this already prophesied? And do I really got to trick my dad to give me what God has already said is going to be mine? And I already kind of swindled it out of my brother once. So shouldn't I just go to God and say, God, what do you want? If this is from God to begin with, shouldn't we go to God about it? God already leveraged Esau's bad decision to bankroll Jacob for life. At this point, Jacob should have realized, wow, all I've got to do is not mess up, and things are probably going to work in my favor. I'm going to have the favor from God. But he doesn't do that, does he? And this is where I've got to ask the question ahead of time, because we know how the story ends. Who would take their life into their own hands when God has clearly shown that it is in his who in their right mind would take life out into our own hands when God has already proven and clearly shown that our lives are in his hands? You can probably guess who would do that. Jacob would do that. And we would do that too, wouldn't we? We have done that. We do that every day, don't we? He doesn't see how foolish this is. He goes through this elaborate ruse. He takes in this meal, sits down in front of his father. If you flip over to Genesis 27, over in verse number 18, this is how the ruse happens. So Jacob went to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. Hmm. Verse 20, but Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found, me, found it so quickly, my son? Because the Lord, <laughs> Jacob just lies, because the Lord, your God, brought it to me. I mean, this is the chosen one of God, blatantly lying through his teeth to his dying father. I mean, does it get any worse? God brought it to me. Isaac says, Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not, because Isaac had a hunch. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hand of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Because Isaac, playing the role of God here, was willing to give Jacob the benefit of the doubt. How could someone be that good? How could someone be that kind? 
Then he said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob has already lied twice. Why not three? I am Esau. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father said to him, come now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing, blessed him and said, and this is the passing of the torch. This is what God said to Abraham, what God said to Isaac. And now Isaac says to his son, Jacob, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, the fatness of earth, the plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren. Let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you the passing of the abrahamic promise stolen by a liar who took advantage of his blind dad all seems well for jacob much like we think things seem well when we get by we get by with some of our tricks right but what follows is a messy encounter where Esau comes before his father, seeks this already giving blessing, and it all hits the fan as you would expect. And suddenly Esau is trying to kill Jacob, and Jacob's mother says, honey, I can't protect you, and he runs for his life. At this point, again, we just got to ask the question, when God says, I've got this, and demonstrates how specifically he has it, why do we still try to take it back? We don't have a good answer, do we? We just know that we do that all the time, don't we? The good news is Jacob fumbled here again and again. We see Jacob in this story living up and being true to his name, trickster, hill catcher. His appetite, like his brother's, was just too big over and pulling against his heart. We find from later stories that Jacob prided himself in being a master manipulator. He was always trying to find a way to turn situations toward him. He thought he was spinning the earth on his finger he didn't realize that it was God who was really sovereign the whole time. It was God who was winking at his lies and turning from his sin. When Esau sold his birthright, he showed that he didn't respect or value God's plan. So God shifted his focus toward Jacob, even though Jacob would prove as undeserving as anybody. But in this story, we see why God would pick someone like Jacob. Because he was embedding his plan of salvation into the soul of Israel. Jacob is no better than Esau. He might even be worse. Playing his own dad for a fool. Stealing and lying what was naturally his that he just, that he just got from his brother. But all this was a part of God's plan. Esau selling out could not thwart God's plan. Jacob fumbling the ball could not stop God's plan. The Apostle Paul would come along thousands of years later and would use this to tell us about the heart of God towards all of us. Romans 9, Paul says, When Rebekah conceived children by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not born yet, had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Paul says, in this one-time demonstration, God was proving how his heart works. That he doesn't look at what we do, the good or the bad. That God elects on his own terms, in his own conditions, out of his own goodness. And get this. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. 
as in the way Esau had it was as if he was just banished. It was almost as if he was the hated child. Now, we get caught up on the Esau part here, but we don't ever ask the question, why would God love someone like Jacob? How could God love someone like Jacob? Because clearly, he wasn't any better. Jacob, if anything, was, wore his sin on his sleeve. He was blatant and defiant about it. God chose to rest his favor upon Jacob over Esau, not because Jacob deserved it. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He did everything to lose it. But as seen in this story, and maybe this is allegorized, Jacob, who tried to even play one over on his dad, his own dad knew what he really was, who he really was. He wasn't blind to it. You see, in this story, we always see Jacob trying to hide who he is from God, who he is from his dad. But come on, we can't hide who we are from God. But the ultimate story that we find from this is there's no need to. At some point, we've got to stop and confess. And when God says, what's your name? We've got to tell him, we've got to tell him who we really are. Jacob will learn this eventually. We think we have everyone fooled, but really we're just fooling ourselves. But shouldn't we come to our senses and deal with our own shortcomings before they deal harshly with us? You may ask, where is God in all of this? He is just looking for someone to model mercy through. He's not out to get someone. He's not out to favor another. He's just out to show his heart. See, Paul asked this question in Romans 9, 14. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And listen to this. It depends, on, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what is the story of Jacob all about? To make it very clear, salvation and God's relating to us depends on God depends on God. Why does it depend on God? And what can we take from God? He has mercy. God chooses a broken mess of a man to start this story, to tell this story. He's in the business of raising up whosoever will, but sometimes it takes us a while to will, doesn't it? At this point in the story, Jacob's now on the run. He soon finds himself begging for mercy. But here's the good news. Lost to his hopes and dreams as he runs away. What we learn is that mercy can find whoever is lost. And even though Jacob runs away, God follows him. He gets down on the ground and looks for him. Mercy went looking for Jacob. Mercy followed Jacob, made an appointment with Jacob to address the mess. We pick up the story in Genesis 28, verse 10. The scripture says that Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night. Jacob's on the run. He may know where he's going, but he has no idea what's in store. He thought he had a grasp on his future, but turns out he wasn't in control at all. And it was in this flight away from home that God met him and makes a promise to him. As he runs away from God, God follows him. And I love this about our God. God is relentless in following us as we fall or flee. Nothing is more sacred to him than finding you. God run, Jacob runs out of stream, steam after he's far enough away from Esau. Instead of feeling closer to God, he feels farther away from God than ever. But here's what Jacob's about to learn as we close and what I hope all of us can have impressed on our hearts today. We 
may feel far away from God, but we actually aren't far away at all because God is wherever we surrender. Wherever? Wherever. Anywhere, anywhere. Even there, even there. Even here. Even here. You mean he's not paywall behind a certain place or a particular place? Listen, wherever you are, wherever we are can be our certain place. Wherever we surrender, God's presence is certain. Look at verse 11. Jacob comes to a certain place, stayed there all night because the sun had set, and there he took one of those stones at that place and put it on his head. He lay down in that place to sleep, and then he had a dream. Physically exalted, spiritually empty, he finds a stone that looked like the, le- looked the least jagged, smoothed out the edges and lays down to sleep. And it was there in this certain place, his certain place, he comes face to face with God. The scripture says he dreams, behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. It top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and the land which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. In you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. God makes an unconditional promise to a undeserving man once again. Now this certain place that Jacob found was not on the map, but it was the posture of his heart. This certain place is where we need to run to every single time. We find ourselves drifting, losing focus, tempted to take a shortcut the whole time knowing it's really just a detour. Our certain place is wherever we are certain about our mess and our loss. It's there we find salvation and the certainty of God's mercy and God's love. Now, I would love to be able to tell you that Jacob gets up from this night of sleep a completely changed man. That he lives happily ever after, but of course, that's not how his story ends, is it? You see, in this moment, Jacob surrendered, yes. But he didn't surrender all. He surrendered some. He surrendered regarding what he was facing in the moment, but he didn't learn that surrender is not simply a one-time posture, but it's a constant, continuous posture. Of course, in his defense, Jacob didn't know he needed to surrender in the areas in which he was about to face temptation in. Jacob didn't know that he needed to surrender. Next slide. In the areas in which he hadn't yet been tempted or tested. See, sometimes we think we've overcome our biggest challenge, but it's only Tuesday and the week's young. What was a bigger challenge than trying to lock in his father's blessing and best his brother's challenge? Falling in love with the girl of his dreams. Trying to win her heart and best his father-in-law's challenge. And if you read the rest of the story, for the next 20 years, Jacob, a trickster and deceiver, spends 20 years in the land of tricksters and deceivers. It's like everywhere he goes, he sees a mirror of himself. Running from himself, he comes face to face with an older, trickier version of himself. And it's here where Jacob's appetite just goes out of control. 
For the next 20 years, there's no mention of the Lord. He spends all of his time trying to work off debt. His father-in-law tricks him into accruing. And after it's all finally paid off, 20 years later, Jacob pulls off a trick to end all tricks. He ends up swindling all the livestock raised on the land and somehow gets away a free man, the wealthiest man in the world. He leaves with livestock, servants, four wives, over a dozen kids. Jacob decides it's time to head back home and finally enjoy life. There's just one problem. Jacob tried to keep quiet his return, but perhaps Laban got the final word and sent ahead to a certain someone that his brother was coming home. Esau sends word that he and his army of 400 men are going to head off Jacob from ever getting home. Jacob is terrified. He does something he hasn't done in 20 years. He prays. But God doesn't respond. So Jacob, once again, takes his life into his own hands. He divides up his entourage into four parts, as you would. The first part of it is going to be livestock and servants. The second section is going to be his mistresses and the four kids he has with them. Then it's Leah and the six kids he has with her. And then it's his favorite wife, because everybody has a favorite, right? Rachel and his favorite son, Joseph. And what is his plan? He hopes that when Esau gets to the first group, he'll accept it as a peace offering. But if Esau does it and plows through and begins to destroy and kill and murder and steal and whatever, by the time he gets to Rachel and Joseph, maybe Jacob can get away to safety before he kills his favorite wife and favorite son. You see, Jacob hasn't changed a bit, has he? That night before the impending meeting, they were camping by a river, but Jacob becomes suspicious that he's being watched. So he signaled to the convoy to start wading through the water. Maybe Esau was launching a sneak attack. Jacob wasn't about to be exposed for the coward he truly was. He decides to face him man to man once and for all. Over in Genesis 32, this is how Jacob's story ends. Over in verse 22, he rose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. But I have a hunch Jacob thought somebody was watching. Suddenly this man appeared, it says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Could this be Esau? Jacob had seen this man before, but only in his dreams. This wasn't his brother. The man attacked Jacob, and Jacob fought back, wrestling all night. Jacob was convinced this was God himself. Jacob, free from his stuff, free from his family, all that his appetite had ever lived for, wrestles with God, seeking approval and acceptance, seeking a true blessing, not like the one he stole from his brother and lied to his father to get. In verse 25, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, the socket of Jacob's hip, without a joint as he wrestled him. He said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let go unless you bless me. Because that's all Jacob's been trying to get his whole life, isn't it? Verse 27. He said, what is your name? Remember when Isaac asked him what his name was? He lied. What's your name? I know you don't want to say it. Because I know what your name means. It means trickster. 
It means liar. It means deceiver. It means undeserving. But listen, son, you've got to be honest about who you are because I've been chasing you for 20 plus years. And if I wanted to give up on you because of who you were, I would have never, ever give you a chance. Isn't that awesome? So what is your name? Jacob. In this story, we find the blessing would not be found through fighting, but by surrendering, not through worth, but by confessing his unworthiness. He had to say his name, deceiver, supplanter, trickster. Confess your sins and you can be saved. Admit the fall, surrender to the fall, not hiding it. He had to say his own name. He had to own his appetite, his own nature of tricks and deception, supplanting and heel catching. And isn't it ironic? The one, the one who supplanted his brother's heel was himself supplanted with a broken hip. He couldn't limp out of this one. He had to surrender. And when he did, God provided something amazing. He said, Jacob, here's the word, buddy. You're going to rejoin your family. Esau's going to forgive you. He's already forgiven you. You're going to carry away, you're going to own this blessing. You're going to spread it to the whole earth, but not through the name Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men, and you've prevailed. So God says, we're starting a brand new chapter, buddy. He anointed Jacob as Israel, prince of God, because he struggled and won the crown. How did he win the crown? He fell on the ground and surrendered. He quit fighting. He surrendered like he should have 20 years before. God leaves Jacob with a permanent reminder of why surrendering is the only option. Verse 20 or verse 31, as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him. He limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. As he had been brought to his knees in this wrestling match, Jacob would now be reminded with every step and every limp that surrender is the only option, as it would be much easier for him to fall on his knees now. And you know what else Jacob discovered, what we discovered? How can we indeed be both far away and not far away from God's will and work at the same time? How can can that be? It's all about posture. And it's all about realizing that at any time, we are just 20 inches away from mercy. There's about a 20-inch difference between far away and not far away. Between standing and struggling on our own feet and surrendering on our knees. Think about this. It took Jacob 20 years of chasing blessings to realize that they were only ever 20 inches away. Guess what? We're only 20 inches from mercy today. No matter what kind of mess you've made, the struggle you've been in, you can surrender to God today. Acknowledge that this life is a gift from him. It's his to give. We can trust him because he delights to give it. Jacob was no different than us. We're just like him, fallen sons and fallen daughters, falling away. But our God is the same God that Jacob served and surrendered to. 
If you ever wonder maybe why Psalms 24 addresses God this way, I want you to hear this. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, or this is the God of Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. God of Jacob reminds us that God has been and will be the same God to us as he was to Jacob. Merciful as he was to Jacob. So may we remember the secret to finding mercy. 20 years of making a mess. When he was only 20 inches, let's go to the next slide. May we remember, even when we feel far away, mercy is always and only just 20 inches away. Turns out, God is not that far away after all. It's just about our posture. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful for this reminder of your loving kindness today. Thank you for the gift of life that you have given sinners like me. Thank you for your mercy that proves sufficient and ready and available to all of us to this day. Father, I pray to the God of Jacob that you would make yourself known in this house today to those that may feel like they've went too far and that they're too far away. Lord, would you remind them and show them that they're not far away at all and they don't have to spend 20 years trying to find you when it's just a 20-inch journey to encounter you today. God, thank you for the story of Jacob and thank you that his story can be our story that his God can be our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.